things that helped you survive don't always bring you value when you're just living. Hello, and welcome to Reclaim Your Radiance, a podcast where we discuss the most intimate parts of the human experience. Let's take a deep dive into self-love, sexual pleasure, and absolutely everything in between. I'm your host, Chris Hall, and each week we will be joined by one fabulous friend, and sometimes that friend will just be me, to talk about how we can all become our most radiant selves. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Hello, and welcome back to Reclaim Your Radiance. This week, I'm interviewing Vanessa, a queer woman of color. She is 28 years old from Toronto, Canada, whose family is Sri Lankan and Italian. She has been a social justice warrior for many years, which is how I got to know her as she started a nationwide organization for queer engineers. I would like to warn you at this time that there is sensitive content ahead, and so if you find yourself in a position where you are not able to listen to mentions of assault, please skip this episode. She is here today to speak to you about being a victim and a survivor of sexual assault as a child. Her braveness and her willingness to speak up and tell her story is absolutely awe-inspiring. So without further ado, here's Vanessa. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) It's going great. How are you, Chris? So good. It's so good to see you again. Yeah, it's been a minute. (laughs) Yeah, like five years and a whole lifetime, it seems. Yeah, no kidding. We both graduated since this time. (laughs) Right? Oh my gosh. It's like university all over again. And that amount of time (laughs) has passed again. Yeah, it's wild. It goes so fast. Like I turned 28 tomorrow. Oh my God. I turned 28 like a week ago. (laughs) Both Geminis. Okay, there we go. There we go. And apparently 94s. (laughs) Yes, 94 as well. All right. So I would love to start with um, one of my favorite questions. Instead of like, how are you? How do you feel in your body right now? How does it feel to be you? It's a good question. Um, I would say like right now, what I'm kind of really excited to talk about today is that I think there's like quite a journey in reclaiming your radiance. And for me, I've felt a little disconnected from that lately. So I've been kind of facing some mental health challenges lately, but I've been trying really hard to like go to therapy and do a lot of physical fitness stuff recently. So just today I did a lot of exercising. So I am currently feeling really good and I've been sleeping well. So I'm feeling like I'm getting back slowly on the right path again, which is nice. Awesome. Are you open to sharing some of like your recent mental health struggles at all? Yeah, totally. Well, it's definitely very related to what we'll be talking about today because it has been very connected to my past traumas. And I have something called complex PTSD as like a mental health diagnosis. Um, And CPTSD is basically like PTSD, but fancier um, because it's like prolonged trauma in different ways as a child specifically. Um, So what that kind of presents as is like a little bit of ADHD, a little bit of anxiety and depression, a little bit of dissociation, et cetera. Um, So for me going through COVID and like I was working from home almost the entire time, um, just really disconnected me from like 
basically everything that brought me joy um, outside of like work deliverables, which I do really like my job. So that was probably the only thing that kept me sane, plus my partner who I live with. But um, other than that, it was a really hard time. And I think I'm still like recovering from it because it really just put me in a dark place. And now that things have been relatively more normal, then I'm kind of slowly getting back into it again, which is nice. Yeah. And you were in Toronto during COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Toronto, I heard, had it pretty rough. There was a period of time where it was illegal to be six feet apart outdoors with another human being for like weeks, like February, 2021. So I, I like went through it for sure. Oh my gosh. And like, even like, there's no, like, this is my partner. Like I need a sign that says I live with this person. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. You were allowed to be like within your household. So like, obviously it was great. I was with my partner all the time, but I just like, I'm a very large extrovert and social time is really important to me. So that was, I would like recurringly go like five days without breathing air, like outside, because I would just like forget. I had literally zero reason to go outside and it was actively being discouraged. So I would just like, it would take me days to go on like a 15 minute walk. (laughs) Like it was wild. (laughs) Oh my gosh you mentioned like going for a good workout and like, what other things have you been doing to like bring yourself back after COVID? Yeah. So, um, right before COVID, I was finally getting into a groove of like what I kind of like in a a week of fitness. And for me, that looked like, uh, playing intramural, like soccer or basketball, doing like a pole dancing class with my friends, like more like goofy kind of thing. Although quite the workout, I must say. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, more of like a weights workout, that kind of vibe. So today, like I've, I've actually leveraged um, triathlons quite a bit in my life journey and uh, did my first one out in Vancouver, which is like a very critical part to my story that I will share later. So I'm doing my fifth one in a few weeks. And so I've just been doing a bit of training today, which was nice. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So I guess let's, let's dive into the beginning then. This is, this is where you are right now. Yeah. So where should we start? I'm guessing your childhood. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's so much there, but I'll try to focus on mostly one stream of thought um, or one like main topic in my life, but it's, there's a lot of other stuff that's relevant. So I will probably interweave them a little bit, but essentially growing up. So like my family on the Sri Lankan side, like immigrated to Canada when my mom was like 14 ish. And on my dad's side, he was the third child to be born. And the first two were born in Italy and he was the first one born in Toronto. So they like literally had just come over from Italy. Um, So both of these folks were kind of like part of these families that were immigrant families and didn't come from like a ton of wealth, at least wealth that translated in Canada, like in, in Sri Lanka, my family was, was wealthy, but it's like a 50 to one ratio between the rupee and the Canadian dollar. So doesn't really translate as well over here. So with, I think those financial challenges, there were also considerable mental health challenges. Like my dad um, suffered from 
bipolar disorder, like manic depression, um, as well as like various addictions. And he would be um, kind of in and out of jail when I was young. So had a very tumultuous home life before kind of it got even worse. <laughs> um, but like eight and younger was really just like dealing with stuff with my dad and just dealing with um, we were kind of in this really wealthy white neighborhood in Toronto. And like, I was probably one of five people of color at the whole school. So there was kind of like some sprinkles of racism. I sometimes think it was also like more the fact that we were not wealthy. That was a barrier. Cause like, I'm talking in grade two, people had like juicy sweatpants on and like, like designer clothes and stuff. And I would be like shopping at the thrift store. Cause like, that's what we could afford. This was before thrifting was cool. Um, so uh, it was more just what we could afford. So, yeah, so this is sort of painting the picture of like, had a rough kind of go about it just as a kid. And it was when I was eight, my parents got divorced and my dad moved away and I had always like had a really close relationship with him. So it was really difficult for me. And their divorce was the type of divorce, like my dad, like stopped being involved in my life kind of thing. Like we would maybe call once a month or so, but like that slowly trickled off over time. Um, so I really had this gap in my life of a father and that's when along came Peter. So he was my mom's uh, new boyfriend. He eventually became my stepdad and lived with us for like a decade. Um, so when I was like nine or 10, he basically, we were getting very, very close. Like he was my babysitter. He would take me swimming. We would do all this great stuff. We would recurrently getting these like tickle matches, like tickle monster, whatever. And somewhere along the lines, he decided to basically take advantage of me and ask me to do things and did things that were definitely not okay. And at the time, he told me not to tell my mom about them. So I ended up going around nine years of complete silence about everything that happened in my childhood. So there was the stuff that people knew, which was about like my dad and this kind of chaos and more tumultuous home environment related to that. But there was this kind of gap in other people's knowledge about like this major thing that happened with my stepdad. Cause I, I never told anyone. And when I was like 12 or something, I learned about the fact that if you go to therapy and like say anything related to this, that they have to contact child services like within the hour kind of thing. So I wanted to be kind of ready the day that I went to therapy to talk about this, that like my mom would find out and he would get arrested or whatever. But that day did not come for a very, very long time. And it wasn't until I went to university where I essentially told a friend about what had happened and his job at the time was like a school bus driver. So she was like, aren't you concerned that this might be happening to other children? And I'm like, that's valid and something I'd loosely thought of, but like hadn't really done much with. So it was sort of that fact that really like 
gave me the motivation to do something about it. So over the coming couple of years, I eventually got up the courage to tell my sister, tell my mom and confront him directly. And, you know, my sister warned me like, oh, he might like lie about it or like, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But he in fact just blamed me for it and said that it was like my fault and like I was hitting on him even though I was like nine so you know he was really messed up as an individual and had very not okay thoughts and did not have rational thought in terms of his actions either and carried that for the decade of silence because these incidents were like quite isolated to this you know few weeks of my life when I was this like such a young child and uh we had this sort of like unspoken understanding about it from my perspective throughout this time where it was always unsaid but obviously we both like remembered it so it was the first time we ever actually spoke about it directly was this day and you know my mom believed me and she was very obviously devastated and you know they'd been married for like 10 years at the time that I told her so Essentially, they split up. He he was gone. I finally started going to therapy and I called the police for the first time, like two days after this whole thing happened. And that started like a year, maybe like a 14 month court case that involved like, you know, police coming to for witnesses for me and my mom of like things he said and whatever, what happened to me, obviously, like as the incidents were occurring. And then he eventually pleaded guilty because obviously he had confessed everything. (laughs) Um, So he didn't really have much of a leg to stand on. And I created this thing called a, it's called a victim impact statement. So it's where you kind of like just define how this impacted you is this is the question you're answering so obviously it's a quite long <laughs> response and that was what i spoke in court when uh when it happened the following november so throughout this time i think it was 3 months after i confronted my stepdad my biological dad passed away so i was like really going through it in life. Um, My dad had been homeless for the better part of my teenage years. And uh, like, I would like run into him on the streets, like asking for change when I was like 16. So there was a lot going on, a lot of layers in my life, um, mostly caused by these two men. And unfortunately, both like these father figures in my life that we're supposed to do a very different thing in my journey. So yeah, essentially while I was in Vancouver, my entire like life purpose was to go to work, cook a meal, exercise, sleep. I like did not have anything more complex in life at the time. I didn't really know many people, if anyone in Vancouver at the time. Um, and it took like four months for me to accidentally become really, really close to a roommate in the student house I was in. And we're still like very, very good friends many years later, but really it was just purely rebuild mode. I was like 
basically completely broken going into that. Like it was enough dealing with everything with my stepdad, but then my dad passing away in the middle of it was just like 45 straws on the camel's back um, of, I just like, didn't really have much left else to give and do. So I was like failing school. I gained 40 pounds. Like I was just surviving, like watching 20 episodes of a show a day and like eating dominoes. Like that's what like got me through many of those months. And uh, yeah. So what was so important about Vancouver was just me focusing again on essentially self-care, like just creating a routine, taking care of myself with eating well, cooking for myself, uh, like not ordering out 24 seven and uh, exercise was really important. So I was like, biking to work and I was going out dancing and gay bars, which I'd missed so much because I hadn't really been doing that a lot lately. I ended up deciding to do my first triathlon. So I did a lot of training for that. And so I really associated a lot with like this reclaiming of radiance kind of vibe because it was just a way that really helped me get back to basically my body and athletic abilities. And It was just very fulfilling and satisfying to complete when it was over and it just made me feel very empowered and like resilient to be able to battle something physical to almost represent like the mental thing that had gone on. And uh, yeah, so throughout that journey, it was undoubtedly like the hardest thing I've ever gone through was that like year of my life, like because so much had happened sporadically obviously as a child and as a teenager but in university was just kind of like dealing with it all like it was like I lived through it and then I was physically away from it so now it was time to do something about it and it was actually when I was on exchange in France that I had made the decision that I was going to do something about it so how how old were you at the time like I would it was my 20th birthday in France when I was uh well, I was actually in England with my sister, my sister lives there. And that was the, like, I told her like on my birthday. And then I was like, it was the following September. So I was 21 when I like confronted my mom and my stepdad. And then I was 22 when the court case ended. And I was physically in Vancouver at that time. I think I left around the age of 23. So in retrospect, I was just so young when all of this was happening. And I am very proud of like being able to go through all of that and make it out the other side. And I was doing weekly therapy with a sexual assault, like counselor at my school um, for the first four months, like the first semester. And then the second semester I did like a group, like assault therapy thing. Um, So there were three women who had child sexual abuse backgrounds and two with like adult sexual abuse backgrounds and so it was like the five of us processing everything together which was really valuable so yeah so I basically went back for a final year of school and was like living life thriving I was totally back to my old self I did this thing called bullet journaling I really just appreciated like the final year of school I had started this organization called Antiqueers I was traveling all over the place like spreading the word of (laughs) queer rights and um, 
And you queer is because in engineering? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and it was, it was all really good. And then I graduated and I moved back home to Toronto and the transition from uni was like a little rocky at first, but I just really loved my job. And I would say like the first couple years were really good, moved in with my partner, et cetera. And I was really just getting into the groove of like life as an adult when COVID happened. And that was when it like, it just like, I physically was in this bedroom for like basically a year and a half. <laughs> and it just uh, like really crushed my soul, honestly. Um, like it just was not an environment I thrived in whatsoever. Um, took me away from like absolutely everything I loved. So where I'm at today is that I'm, you know, I've been in therapy like on and off for ever since all this started when I, or all the like confession stuff started when I was like 22. Um, so that's six years now. And uh, my most recent therapist I'm working with is a trauma therapist. So yeah, during COVID, I got diagnosed with CPTSD for the first time, which like complex PTSD, it's, it just helped give language to like so much of what I was experiencing and essentially to be diagnosed with CPTSD, you need three of 10, what is called ACEs or adverse childhood experience syndrome situations, something like that. And you only need three of the 10 to be considered someone with CPTSD. And I actually have all 10. So it's, I'm kind of the poster child for <laughs> CPTSD, but it's, uh, what yeah, are the, just, what are the 10? Do you know any of them? Yeah, there are things like physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, an incarcerated parent witnessing domestic violence against your mother. Trying to remember them all. They're these types of things, but those those are like five off the top of my head. But there's there's ten of them. So yeah, I like I really went through it as a kid, despite like best efforts from my mom to create like a loving, safe environment. Like we were, there was no shortage of love. There was just a lot of chaos, unfortunately. So yeah, I would say part of the, what I recently did with this uh, current trauma therapist was uh, I was tasked to write a letter to my stepdad, uh, literally like within the last week, like this is an exercise I just did. And in doing that, I really got into the headspace of like kind of reliving stuff from back then. So like when he was, you know, confessing everything, I was like literally typing out what he was saying to help with the court case. And for the first time in years, I'd like reread like the transcript of his confession, essentially. Or like I reread my victim impact statement. I reread like emails from when I was like a teenager that were about him or talking about him or like that kind of stuff. And then I wrote this letter to just kind of my therapist has been working with me on this concept of like forgiveness. Like I forgive you. I release you. I let you go. Like, it's just about reclaiming the power in the dynamic and like letting go of resentment and hate and just like the weight it keeps on you so that you can move on. Cause that's been something that I've been really struggling with lately is like, just trying to get back into like a proper headspace. So in rereading my victim impact statement, what was really motivating to me was like 
the paragraph, the way it ended, because I finished writing it right before I went to Vancouver, or I was like one month into Vancouver, was all about like how depressed I was and how I'd like lost who I was and like who I was as myself. And I needed to reconnect with that. And I sort of feel like that's where I've kind of been at post COVID. And it just motivated me because I knew I had done it before. So I feel like I can do it again. Wow. There's, there's so much to say. There's so much to unpack. So Peter is currently in prison then? No. So some fun facts about Ontario law. Oh, God. Um, the law changed in, I want to say, like 2003 or something. And the incident happened in, say, 2002. I'm getting those dates mixed up. But it was like a year before the law changed. So he qualified for what's called jail through the community, which is like essentially house arrest. And his total sentence was nine months, as was the law in 2002 or ish, whenever that was. But for me, it was never really about the sentencing. It was about the guilty verdict and to just give me the freedom to be able to speak about it honestly and openly just after living so long in silence. But like he's on the sex offender list. He had various other consequences. But yeah, I mean, obviously it wasn't a great sentence, (laughs) but I care on behalf of justice, but at the end of the day, like I used to have nightmares about that court case. Like, cause it, like if he had not pled guilty, we would have done the whole like cross-examination thing. And I, again, just nightmares for months about like what was going to happen and what was going to be said. So I had a, an easier experience within the courtroom because he acknowledged what he did and I just had the ability to speak to how it impacted me. And that was all it really was. Um, other than of course my like original like witness statements and stuff like explaining everything that had happened. That was obviously a lot, but like physically being in the courtroom wasn't uh, like the trials you see on TV for sure. Mm, yeah. So what would you say? Because that, that seems like a real fear of like you come out and then they deny it and then you have to then expose yourself and sit on a chair and tell a whole room of strangers about what happened. So what would you say to somebody who, cause like, what is it? 1% of cases get reported, like something tiny, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's maddening. And I definitely have unfortunately had many, many people in my life experience some sort of sexual assault, whether it was as a child or as an adult. And I've always encouraged people to go forward about it. However, it was undoubtedly a very difficult experience. What I would say to people is to just connect with your why. Like for me, it was, I just like couldn't go any longer effectively lying about it. Like I just, I didn't want any kind of defamation or whatever. Like it's just such an, in in my perspective, kind of integral part of my life story is my stepdad sexually abused me as a statement. So to be able to just freely say that is what the whole journey was worth in my mind. And to have it be like publicly recorded and like acknowledged 
if he had decided to lie about it and if he had decided to plead not guilty, like it definitely would have been more difficult for sure, like without a doubt. But I will also say like my lawyer still went through all sorts of scenarios with me. My uh, detective who was in charge of my case would like email me constantly. There's um, something called victim services that you get assigned like a caseworker and they're available to you like all the time to like ask questions to. So like there are quite a few supports like through the system as well as like say you're in university, like a lot of university spaces, you know, you hear criticism that like they don't have enough mental health resources and it's because most of them have a dedicated sexual assault mental health resource. So like I had access to weekly therapy for free when some of my peers were like maybe meeting once every three weeks. So there are like a lot of different resources for specifically sexual assault and trauma that at least I found in my experience. I mean, that's really good. Um, Good to hear. The consolation prize. Right. It's like, oh, that's, Awful, but also good because that resource is there. I, I've noticed that you mentioned the word victim a couple times. And I feel like what I've heard is that the word victim is something that some people have issues with or don't like to have it described that way. And there's a lot of debates around language, especially nowadays, right? Like all the language is changing for how we speak about anything, really. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, how do you feel survivor versus victim? Or just like, how do you feel like what? Is language important to you or is it just like the fact that it's said is important? It's a good question. So I would say in general, I think this exact topic is extremely personal to every individual. I've even heard there's like other terms too that are like not even survivor or uh, victim. I, I think what people don't like is the like, quote unquote, weakness that is felt with the word victim. So that's, I think, why a lot of people gravitate to like avoid it, whereas survivor feels more like empowering and positive. For me personally, I was in denial that I was a victim for like a decade of my existence. So it is kind of liberating for me to acknowledge that I was a victim and to have gone through, you know, when you go through the court case, like it's it's the victim and it's the person you're accusing. So like your title is the victim throughout the court case, Um, which of course is difficult, but to me, it's, it's just the word that is like the person that the thing happened to, I guess is how I feel about it. But I generally refer to myself as a survivor. I don't refer to myself as a victim, but I also acknowledge that I am a victim of child sexual abuse, like without a doubt, because I think there's like a lot of stuff around like shame and guilt uh, and just like owning it onto yourself. So I feel like the one benefit of the word victim is it makes it clear that it was not your fault. This happened to you and it's somebody else's wrongdoing. And I think you go through a journey to become a survivor by overcoming it. And I think I, I don't really have personal challenges with either word but I know I get it why other people would for sure because it's again a very personal thing yeah for sure yes thanks for thanks for clarifying that because I I don't know I I don't know how to refer to it and uh, there's potentially some listeners that don't either 
editing Chris here, just popping in to say a quick hello and thank you so much for being here. If you're enjoying this episode or it is making an impact on you, please share it on social media or word of mouth. Give it to someone who you think would really enjoy it or learn from it. Share the love. Rate, follow, subscribe, comment, and let me know what you think. It really means so much as I am the creator, producer, and host of this podcast in my evenings away from my full-time job. So I am putting my heart and soul into telling these stories as I think they are incredibly valuable and important. Reach out on Instagram at hell of a hall or on TikTok at reclaim your radiance to connect. Thanks. That's all for today. Short and sweet. And now back to the podcast. What did it look like when you finally came up to the, okay, I'm going to speak about it. Was it a slow kind of realization that this is something you need to say Or did it like all of a sudden just like come on to you and you're like, okay, I'm ready. This is going to happen now. Yeah, it was a, it was a multi-year journey. So again, in my case where I was in denial about it for so long, it was like a big step on just accepting it. I've thought about this a lot in life and I have a loose idea for the word like book is aggressive, but like just something like some sort of resource to help people understand sort of the step-by-step. First thing was just coming to terms with it. I had a decade of silence. So that was really heavy to weigh on. Um, So for me, the, the first step was just telling peers. Their reaction was dictating a lot of how I dealt with it. So like when I was really young, like I said, basically the statement, like, oh, like my stepdad did something, but it was no big deal. Something to that effect. So the people reacted like, oh, okay. Like sounds like no big deal. Cause you said it was no big deal versus when I was more descriptive many years later, that was the friend who reacted like, oh my gosh, you have to do something. So, um, like people are going to react differently because not everyone is equipped to deal with this, especially when you're all kids. So like, as if anyone knows anything, then I think the next level was telling family in my case, siblings. So I think it's just like another layer of closeness because they knew the person, they were in the house with the person, et cetera. And uh, sometimes like the same thing might've happened to them that that wasn't my case, but could, could be with others. But then for me, the step that was going to always be the hardest was telling my parents, or in this case, my mom, um, A, because she was married to him, B, she lived with him. C, it's obviously devastating information. (laughs) So I think like that journey to go from steps of coming to terms with myself, telling peers, telling family, then telling parents, that was like two years, three years. So it was... And again, this is university. So there's like a billion things going on. You're like doing courses and extracurriculars and, you know, there's a million and 10 distractions, but at the end of the day, you go home for Thanksgiving and he's there. You go home for Christmas and he's there. You get an email from your mom and he's mentioned like he was an inescapable presence for me. And I had originally made the decision like, oh, I'll just like never go home again or whatever. I don't know. It was questionable logic. Um, But then I decided like, can't do that. And I wanted to really protect my mom. So I was just like, she's living in this universe where this never happened. So like the longer I avoid telling her, the longer she gets to live in that world. So that was, that was the hardest thing was just like knowing I was taking away her partner, especially as she, you know, she was older, she was in her fifties. Like it's, I knew it was going to be life-changing for her for a lot of ways. And it obviously was. So um, I think that was 
the hardest thing, but, um, it got to the point I was sort of procrastinating it. So I just set a v- arbitrary date on my calendar, September 12th. And I messaged a few friends and was like, I need you guys to be there. And they were like, of course. So I did have like four or five people there that day that were like hanging around because the one thing that was going through my head over and over and over again was like, this is such an unprecedented situation that like anything could happen. Like I was like, is there a gun in the house? There, like, there's knives, like who's going to die? Someone going to commit suicide. Someone going to kill someone. Am I going to die? Like what, like, like your brain just goes to like all these extremes because I would argue they're possible, how probable they are, who knows, but like, it just feels like more or less one of the most emotionally volatile, like moments in many people's lives that was going to happen. So this was also like where I really uh, developed my kind of like freeze fawn response. So often when we talk about trauma responses, we talk about fight or flight, but there's more. And my response is to like really calmly, like speak in a, in a, in a cool tone and like try to bring down the energy. And like, so, so that was, really the way I acted because I was so afraid of like anyone escalating and getting violent. And so we had an extremely calm 45 minute discussion as he was confessing everything because I was just like, anytime the tone would like spike a little bit, I was like bringing it back down. So I think because that was like the role I played in that situation, it was like, it's, it's, uh, basically the way I handle all arguments now. And this is, what's really interesting about where I'm at in life now is that like things that helped you survive don't always bring you value when you're just living. So when you go from this situation of like being in absolute survival mode, like get through the day, like whether it's your mental health or like the physical situation you're in, your body will come up with all these defense mechanisms that will be what you need to get through it. And then one day, hopefully you will be out of that situation, but your body will still react that way. And sometimes it's not productive anymore because you're not needing to pay attention to the microtone of the men around you. You're not needing to guilt yourself over like the food you're eating because it's no longer becoming like a blind I don't even know how to describe the food one it's like a very complicated one but I just know that you know I used to eat like essentially a full pizza like all the time and now I'm always like hyper cognizant when I'm eating Cause I'm like, well, I no longer need to eat the full pizza to like get through the day. Like it's normal to have like a couple slices. So like navigating that is <laughs> challenging. So yes, I feel like I got on a tangent, but I hope that answers your question. <laughs> tangents are good. Tangents are excellent. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, um, I think the, the biggest things I took from that story were like bringing peers along with you and like having that support system so big and like having the friends who were like there to be your backup, to like hold your hand while you do it. Like that's incredible. And then also like the, like the being ready for anything, but like setting a date, setting a date. Like, cause I've heard, I've heard people say that kind of thing for like a tattoo, which obviously not even in the same realm of comparison, but something scary, right. Something that you like, 
are just something that you find hard to face no matter how big it is. And yeah, setting that date and sticking to it and like sticking to it, that is just impressive in itself, right? That the day comes and you're like, okay, yeah, today's the day. And this is when it's going to happen. And this is what's going to happen. It was one of those things like you absolutely needed to rip off the bandaid. Like I could have gone forever without doing anything, you know, like, and I did go a really long time because the length of time between telling my sister and telling my mom was over a year. And like, I had ended the conversation with my sister, like promising I would tell my mom and I intended to keep that. It just, okay, well, A, it has to happen in person. Well, I'm currently living in France. Then I'm going to move to Hamilton. Now I have a summer job in Peterborough. So like she's in Toronto. So how am I going to, excuses, excuses, excuses. And and again, like you don't want to make it like, oh, I'm going to do it at Easter. I'm going to do it at Thanksgiving. Like it needs to be like a random day. It was my personal thought at least. And uh, yeah, but if I hadn't set that date, it would have never happened for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So I have a question that's potentially a little bit more personal. I'm curious if you're willing to talk about if this has or how or how it's impacted your sex life as an adult. Has it trickled into it? How do you notice it? Yeah. Being present in that way. Yeah, I would say I am actively trying to unpack that currently. So I think I had a very different relationship with sex growing up, like when I was first like experimenting and owning it and whatnot. And I think today it looks very different and it's trying to reconcile those differences and trying to, again, there's a lot of resources for survivors of like how to regain comfort and like approach these types of things because I recurrently feel like I no longer have it all figured out and it's a variety of things like you don't always feel comfortable you get in your head you have like a quarter millisecond thought that just like ruins everything there's a lot of different ways that I mean it undoubtedly impacts your sex life for sure but it's a it's definitely t- discussed a lot in therapy and having the right partner who's understanding and not putting pressure on you and uh, will like flex to make adjustments as you need them. Like these are all really important and helpful things. But I'm definitely a firm believer that like you can have uh, like a positive, happy sex life for sure. But I would also acknowledge like maybe it will look a little bit different than the quote unquote normal sex life and that that is totally okay because when your brain is rewired in such a critical development phase, like there are consequences to that. And that's just something that used to make me kind of uncomfortable, but that I acknowledge and accept that about myself because it's again, not my fault. Yeah. No, the, the fact that you're able to say this is not my fault and like, and even just using the word victim in that way, I think is just, is, is very powerful. And it's, it's, I'm just, I'm glad because <laughs> I could just say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, okay. So your partner, um, I knew you back in university and is it still been the same partner since then? No. So, um, my partner is its still a man, uh, but it is a new person. We've been together, just celebrated our four-year anniversary. But actually, the partner I'm with right now, I've known since early high school. So we've known each other almost 15 years. And uh, 
he was one of the friends who was physically there that night. So he has been very, very close to me forever and knows all about this and then some. So um, that is convenient to say the least. (laughs) Just a bit, just just tiny bit convenient. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm curious if you ever have any interlocking thoughts, like when did your queerness become, where did you, when did you become aware of your queerness and like, how did that manifest within the context of your childhood? Yeah. So I would say I came out around like 15 ish. Um, it was pointed out to me by a, by a guy who was like, I thought I was just being like protective over my best friend. And he was like, I think you love her. And I was like, Oh my God, I do love her. (laughs) Um, And it was one of those aha moments of like, wow, I've really been attracted to women like all over the place in my life. Um, So I've been very openly queer since then. I've identified throughout the spectrum of bi, pan, queer. Um, I fundamentally just do not put like genitalia and physical appearance as criteria in my attraction is usually how I frame it which is like a very pansexual kind of vibe like maybe bordering demisexual sometimes of like their personality and 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 you know intellect I think is like a very big thing for me as well but I just definitely have been very confident in my queerness for a long time. Unfortunately, didn't have a lot of access to queer people (laughs) throughout my life. Tried to create a queer organization to gain said access. Um, But no, I just uh, like, I'm in very heteronormative spaces, like a lot. So I think naturally some of the people that I've gravitated towards have happened to be dudes. And like, what are you going to do? You fall in love with a guy, you're like, ah, again <laughs> right they're just around there's just so much more of them around somehow <laughs> but no I mean I um I sometimes joke with him he's the last guy I'll ever date because I just I just uh have a deep-rooted distrust in men and he has the benefit of time and the benefit of being an awesome person who I trust very very deeply and I struggle to sometimes rebuild that with new men but uh yeah I would say the way it intersected with all this is just like I think I fundamentally feel much much more at ease with women than with men almost explicitly as a result of what happened to me as a child without a doubt um I've always had like female mentors female family I'm close to female everything like feminine energy has always been my comfort zone. So I think fundamentally I have a ton of like female friends, gay male friends, but in like high school, I was, I primarily had like straight male friends. So I do have like a core group of guys that I still hang out with to this day. And like, I I have friends who are straight male friends. (laughs) They exist. It's, I definitely just feel like I more likely to gravitate towards women and men on some sort of spectrum, trans folks, non-binary folks, etc. Yes. There's, there's a comfort there, right? There's a like, oh, they understand my context and they're like on this and they, they kind of reject these norms that have just been like placed, even though people can reject them and still just be like, huh, thought about it. 
definitely fundamentally heterosexual and cisgendered. And it's like, that's okay. That's okay. Thought about it. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I guess I'm kind of reversing a bit. I, I wanted to, I realized I forgot to ask how best can, and this is like speaking on a more general basis too, right? So I feel like, cause it's so a couple of times there's been themes in your story where it's like, I did this for somebody else, right? Like you, you sounded like you were protecting your mom at the detriment of yourself, right? You're like, I don't want to ruin her life. And that's like really impacting you. And then the same with like the only, like when you started realizing, oh, I'm, I, I need to speak out about this is because somebody pointed out that he could do it to someone else. Right. And so yeah. that's, that's definitely a theme that we see a lot. And so if you want to touch on that, let's touch on that. But I also, I guess my question is how best can people support others when, when somebody comes to you and somebody like, what is the best thing you think that somebody can hear and what can you do? Yeah. I, I think sometimes people need to be reminded to just care for themselves and care about themselves. Cause that is definitely a theme in my life. You are very right. I love volunteering. I love giving back. I love doing a job that impacts a lot of other people. I am much less successful at tasks that are for only me and only for my own benefit. So uh, so I've been on this big self-care journey lately, hence all the exercise and stuff like this. So yeah, I, I think that's one big thing people can do is just remind people to care about themselves fundamentally, take care of themselves, remind them they're important. But I mean, in terms of like, I think the number one most important thing, if anyone ever shares anything related to this child, sexual abuse, sexual abuse of any kind is to just give that person like affirmation Like what they need in that moment is not, oh, but like, can you clarify this detail? And like, oh, like, are you sure this is whatever? Like, I think the number one thing they need to hear is like, thank you for confiding in me with that. I know that was hard to share and you were really vulnerable. Thank you for trusting me. And I'm really sorry that happened to you. That sounds really terrible. And if you want to talk more about it, let's talk more about it. If you never want to talk about it again, we never have to talk about it again, but I would encourage you to seek the help you need, such as a professional therapist, such as coming forward to, you know, in my case, it was family, but it might've been like a neighbor or whatever. I think the stats are like eight out of 10 times, you know, the person though. So something like this, like the vast majority, you, you do know them. So telling people involved. And then uh, if you feel ready to tell authorities to try to have something more official be done, obviously there's not a great trust in police and in the system in general, but I personally feel it is better than nothing. And it's what people need to go through in their own journeys though, for sure. Like that, that is a point I've not pressed as hard with peers and friends and whomever of mine that have shared I've encouraged at different times been close to persuading one friend but it never never has come to fruition with anyone in my life other other than me that I've I've known about something like this but I think that is how the system is currently supporting survivors more than anything else Um, and the system definitely needs to improve and change because yeah to your comment earlier like 
yeah, he's not still in prison. What's that about? <laughs> I was, I was so sure what I asked too. I was like, there's no way this guy isn't in prison. Like, like, does this bring you any comfort? Like what, right. And like, but I'm, I'm glad that it's still like your comment about the why I think that's so, so powerful and so important of like, and that you achieved your why. And that's, mm-hmm. that's ultimately the goal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's even the why is partially also, it's just getting the, you being able to speak the truth, like throughout, you know, mm-hmm. it's just valuable for sure. Yeah. And like, I, I guess part of the reason I felt like I could reach out to you and felt like I could ask you to come on and speak about it is because you have been so open and vulnerable on social media about this. And I was like, well, if, if she's sharing it on Instagram that I feel like you might be open to speaking about it on a podcast, but yeah, even just like emailing you to ask you to to speak about this was like, I don't know if this is okay. I don't know if this passes any boundaries, but I'm going to try it. And I know Vanessa, she's cool. I feel like this won't insult her. And hopefully well, it's, it, a- it's definitely one of those things that like, since I've started speaking about it more publicly, like I've written a news article or two about it. I've made, as you said, made some Instagram posts. I do a lot of like panels and stuff and I've started to like share at least the sentiment that I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse, like in a statement throughout different introductions, I have had like so many people come forward to me about their own experiences. Some that are like literally their stepdad or like a priest or an uncle or whatever. A lot of this type of vibe, dentist, etc. So it's, it's so prevalent child sexual abuse in particular Um, And it's really not talked about and like, it's heavy. Like it's, it's not a light subject and it's hard to talk about casually. It's hard to talk about in an upbeat manner. So um, I'm happy to, I want to be a resource for other people. Like I don't think, you know, I'm sure there's people out there, but like not, not too many people talk about like going through the court case and going at the other side and confronting people and whatever, like there's a lot of steps involved. So I try to give what is reasonable to myself and acknowledge that there's like some elements of like re-traumatization that I need to navigate as well. Cause yeah, I like, I'm looking at these notes again. Like I talked about like the first four steps up to like telling your parents, but like, you know, the step of confronting your abuser, like the potential of lying, the potential of danger, the words that they say like are going to haunt you forever starting therapy for the first time, starting the court case, giving your statement to the police, doing your victim impact statement, the actual court gate, the actual court date, navigating the verdict, continuing therapy, navigating PTSD, living on, like, it's my book outline. (laughs) It's, It's a long journey and there's a lot to it, but I think that people can gain a lot of comfort and empowerment through the journey. And... I think just the biggest thing is like, generally speaking, I have found is like confronting your demons head on, especially when it comes to childhood trauma type stuff. Like you are going to live with that. My my therapist uses this metaphor of like, say you have a, a yellow dress and like green paint gets spilled on it. Like you still have a yellow dress, but I argue for the rest of your life, you will have a yellow dress with a green stain on it. Like it would not have had the green stain unless the green paint was thrown on it. It's not the dress's fault. It has a green stain, but it has a green stain. And 
you know, you can put like a pin over it or whatever. You can try to hide it. You can not look at it. You can avoid it. You can call yourself a yellow dress, but like that green stain exists. What's the opposite of removable? <laughs> you can't remove it. <laughs> I'm permanent. like, you're removable. <laughs> it's permanent. <laughs> um, the stain is pres- permanent. So it's just better to, I find, confront it. And like, if nothing else in therapy, and if you're in my situation, if therapy means like other people need to get involved that day, then, then there's more steps to it. So, cause, cause that, that is sort of one thing that is unfortunate again with the system. Like it would have been lovely if there was some space I could have just like talked about this in, but equally, like I do understand, understand why it exists. I don't understand why they tell this rule to children. Like it feels like it defeats the purpose. Like children are just going to not say things because they know of the rule. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's a little tough, especially when you have that instinct to protect everyone around you. Yeah. Yeah. That's the fact that that stopped you is yeah. a, A huge red flag in terms of therapeutic practices. Oh yeah. Like I definitely, I think I would have just told someone in confidence like that many, many years prior, if I hadn't known about that. Oh, I wonder if it's the law. I wonder if there's some, it, it is the law that they, and, no, but but they have to tell you. Yeah. They the ha- fact they have to tell you, they have to disclose it. That's what's like hard. I guess that's it fair just, because they are not allowed to disclose anything, but they have to tell you if you say something, but like, still that seems so like make it in a small print on a contract. Right. Then a child won't see it, won't read it. And oh. the therapy used to, I swear it used to just be like, hi, you can say absolutely anything here. It's all confidential unless you were abused sexually as a child. That's the one thing. Well, and I'm also, like, also suicide. Cool. <laughs> yeah. It's suicide like, or intent to hurt someone. That's always, yeah, that's fair. It's like very specific. And you're like, okay, well, guess I won't tell you then. <laughs> and like, that has very limited use. If you're going through therapy as a child and you can't speak about the reason that you're probably in therapy. Well, and I get it. It's, it's created in such a way that like, you're supposed to speak about it, I guess, is the thought, but Yeah. I often, I think back to like, what would it have taken for me to have done something about this earlier? And like, I sometimes think about like how my life could have been obviously quite different if I had said something that day, that week, that month, that year, the first five years while I was still living there, while I was a child, like there were a lot of different options that were paths that were not part of my journey. And I just, try not to torment myself (laughs) with thinking about them too much because I mean at the end of the day I think I was still quite young when I dealt with everything very much a young adult even though I was you know early 20s Um, like your brain doesn't stop developing until you're 25 ish so like it was pretty developed (laughs) so yeah I I'm I'm glad I dealt with it when I did and I'm also fortunate that not everyone is able to deal with these things and confront them and have a mother who believes them and have a person plead guilty. Like I did get lucky in some, some regards, if that's how you want to phrase it. <laughs> Silver lining. There, Silver there, lining. there, there it is. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing and for just all of your honesty and for all of your bravery and for continuing to share it with people and I'm sure every single one of these, those people who reached out, reaches out and continues to reach out is just so thankful that you are brave enough to do so. Thank you. Yeah. It, it does. It helps feel like there's, 
was a purpose to all of this to know that even if it's just these handful of people that I know about, just to know that they know they're not alone and to hopefully help other people as well. And there's a butterfly effect to that for sure. I definitely hope so. <laughs> yeah. So before we we end today, one, is there anything else you'd like to say? Anything you'd like to tell people, get off your chest? I would just say when it comes to this topic, no matter what you went through and what you're going through and what you'll continue to go through, that you're valuable, you deserve happiness, and it will sometimes be an uphill journey, but you know, just take it a step at a time and find your support systems. And uh, just for you to be here today, you had the resilience to overcome that time in your life. And, you know, if, if you had the power to survive, you can have the power to heal. It's beautiful. Thank you. And is there anything you'd like to share? Like if, if people want to follow you, if people want to reach out to you, um, how would they do so? Yeah. Um, I would just say that they can connect with you maybe to start with. And if there's anything, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on social media platforms and stuff, but I, I'm, I might not always have the emotional capacity to personally help you through your journey, but, uh, I will do my best if you do reach out so we can share a link somewhere. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of this week's episode of Reclaim Your Radiance. Thank you so much for joining this week. I hope you enjoyed your time with us and came away with something truly valuable. If you want more and simply cannot wait until next week, come join us online. Reach out on Instagram at Hell of a Hall or on TikTok at Reclaim Your Radiance to connect. We also have a Facebook community with the name Reclaim Your Radiance, where we talk about all sorts of topics related to the podcast and tons that aren't. It's a community of like-minded souls who want to dive deeper into these things and keep the conversation going. Or maybe you're more of a tips and tricks straight to your inbox kind of person. Sign up for our mailing list to receive bonus content and stay in touch with what's happening in the world of Reclaim Your Radiance, including retreats, self-love courses, and more. Stay tuned. Head on over to the episode notes in the show description to find those links, and I hope to see you online soon. All right, everyone, until next week, stay radiant. Stay radiant.